The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilead and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days by the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. And then over to over the page, chapter 14. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armour, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. 
So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, bearer followed and, kill, uh, and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Grab a hold of your Bible. If you've got one of the church ones, the NIVs, please turn up page 199. Kaylee, you just made a noise like a horse. Brilliant. Are you enjoying going through Samuel? Are you enjoying that? It's great, isn't it? Matty's like, mm, so so. Get the Bible open, you numpty. It's under your chair. Honestly. Right, I hope you come expectant today. I really do. Uh, I need some help. You need some help. But isn't it wonderful that the Lord, his posture towards us is to give us grace and help. So join with me now, Willie, as we pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on our souls today, we pray, because but for that we're stuffed. Uh, we praise you that you are good and gracious and we praise you that in knowing you and in pressing into you and your great and precious promises, there is renewal for our soul. There is something worth living for. There is a Christ who is present. And we want to know and experience all of those things together now. We want to be able to sing by the end of it that you're the one who will hold us fast, that you're the one in whom... We can find rest for our soul. So would you help us as we dare to pray that we would have fun in your words, seeing you at work, seeing something of ourselves, and finding grace and mercy. Lord, be kind to us now, not because we deserve it, but because we come needy. In the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, here's the thing about the claim of Christianity. Here's the thing about the message of the Bible. You aren't just being merely asked to believe a few things about something that happened to a guy called Jesus 2,000 years ago. You're being asked to see your whole reality through a different lens. To rehang the way that you process every single moment of your life. You see, every moment... And I'm feeling really modern as I say this because, you know, there's, there's loads of books out here about seize the moment or own the moment. That's actually a profoundly biblical idea because every moment of your life you're being asked, invited to choose which world you will live in. World number one is two-dimensional and grey. It merely goes on the horizontal. It's where... The realities of the situation will rule over and demand things of you. You will measure your priorities and set your priorities by your potential in that moment. It puts us under pressure. It has no hope of an outside help. God isn't even present in that world. 
And that's the one which I think our hearts have a natural drift towards day by day. Think about the, the world you've been tempted to live in this world, in this week. But world number two is three-dimensional and it's brightly coloured. Because it's a world where there is a living God who has a good purpose and he is present for his people, not just in an act of salvation at the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, but right here, right now, he knows your address and he's gracious to you. And in every moment of your life, in every mood swing that you experience, in every thing that comes at you, in every set of thoughts that are in your mind, you're being invited in that moment, am I going to live in world number one? Or am I going to live in world number two? Grey, colourful, two-dimensional, three-dimensional. Which world do you want to live in, people? No, no, that's the wrong question. In this past week, which world have you mostly been living in? Isn't it hard? In the drudgery and in the ongoing challenges, when so often faith seems so weak and God seems so far. And that's why we gather. We gather to get under God's word, to be called back. And do you remember those of you with us last week that we were seeing that moment, that sort of retirement sermon from the, 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 the prophet Samuel? And he says, choose today whom you're going to serve or choose which world you want to live in. And he lays it out. And we, I mean, we've got two old chapters to do, so I thought we may as well go back into last week's as well. So look down at chapter 12 and the end there. Starting to read at verse 21. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his na great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your hearts. In each and every moment, live in not world number one, live in world number two, where there is a present gracious Lord. Consider what great things he has done for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Did you do that this week? When you got up and you're feeling crappy, or when that person got in your face again, did you let the demands of the circumstance and the moment dominate your response? Or did you stop for a second? People hear me. Did you stop for a minute and say, consider what great things the Lord has done for you? Ooh. Isn't it easy to live? Am I preaching to anybody today? Isn't it easy to live in world number one rather than number two? So which way will the nation of Israel go? What will they do? What will they do? Oh, there's so much potential and so much potential for forfeiting. Which way will they go? Listen, we're not going to get time to do these whole two chapters. I could stand here and I could...
go for about three hours on this and probably I'll be dead by the end of it because you will have killed me with all those evils. Uh, but we've got a table service coming up afterwards and I want to honour this. So we're going to see, we're going to try and break these two chapters down into three bits. We probably won't get to the end, but I assure you I will have stopped by just after five past twelve. Uh, Kosh will no doubt hold me to this. I'm going to give him, as long as he doesn't yawn, I'll let him hold me to time. Is that fair enough? Brilliant. We want to see firstly... In the first part of chapter 13, that fear exposes a faithless heart. Now, straight into verse 13, and I'm almost not, well, I'm not going to read it because the t- in the original Hebrew, this is rare, very, very rare, there is a lack of clarity over the timings. There's a lack of clarity over the number of years and how old. But basically, what I think, if you go back into the original, what we're basically being told in that bit is Saul's, we get a summary of Saul's reign. And it's really disappointing because it basically it's about a year after he was told he was going to be king, he got publicly anointed king, and then his reign went on for about two years with him doing it well. And this is the great tragedy. After those two years, his reign got cancelled. We're going to see it happen. Though he, can t- he continued to reign for nearly another 30, well, more than 35 more years. But here was a guy, because in that moment he picked the wrong world, so much potential was lost. So let's see what happens. We, we get an intro to a guy called Jonathan. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Mishmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah in Benjamin. Now we find out later on that Jonathan is the second in command. It is his son. And of course, the enemies are not far away, and Jonathan, not Saul, Jonathan mobilizes the troops and this small standing army against a much bigger force. And he goes, come on, fellas, we're off. We're going to have a bit of a fight. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at um, Gibber and the Philistines heard about it and they said, oh, we don't care. No, of course they didn't. It was like kicking over a bee's nest. Amy did that once. 23 bee stings or wasp stings, wasn't it? She'll be great. I know, I'll poke it with a stick. That's going to end well. Wonderful. We ended up picking her up and throwing her into a swimming pool to try and neutralise all the stings. Was that a happy day, Amy? Amy learnt you don't stir up a wasp's nest. She's got a bad history with wasps. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistines. Is that what happened? You see... The news headlines was that Saul's doing the business, but was he really? No, he wasn't. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal, so he starts to form an army, and the Philistines assembled to fight the is, uh, Israel with 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. And again, there's problems with the numbers here, but it, when you get to the end of that bit, what you basically find is there are shed loads of Philistines, and there were very few Israelites. They went up and camped at Mishmash, east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that the situation was critical or going south, they said, don't worry. We've been here before, boys. In this moment, God is going to show his power and grace. Is that what they said? When the men of Israel saw that the situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and rocks and in pits and cisterns. Does that sound personally familiar to you? We live so much in world number one that we're prepared to hide in a coffin. All those dead places that have never worked for us before. Rather than let the Lord be seen in all his power. 
That's one of the best things about going through this old book of the Bible. It's just me. (laughs) It's me and my constant struggle. And guess what? We know each other well enough. It's you as well. That's where we live. They'd seen the power of the Lord again and again and again. What another wonderful opportunity to enjoy the fulfillment of his promises and to be assured by his grace and to see his power at work. This could be the moment. This could be. Imagine the stories we can tell. Imagine the testimony sessions we'll have in the new year at church and everybody's getting up and talking about how in that moment it could have gone south but the Lord was there and he won a great battle and he he stirred up my heart and we sing big songs and but they didn't want to go there, did they? In fact, everything was sort of going well for Saul. He did better than normal. Because in verse 8, he waited for seven days. Saul remained in Gilgal, end of verse 7, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So he waited for a period for seven days. Now remember, this is something he'd been taught to do back in chapter 10. He was told that before you go into battle, what's going to happen is you'll wait seven days because you'll be teaching yourself as the king and the troops that are with you that the battle is always the Lord's, and at the end of that, his prophet will turn up and say, right, now is the time, everything's before the Lord. And Saul waited, he waited day one, day two, he's ticking off on his calendar, he's beginning to shiver, he's seeing all the men slowly disappearing, the troops have gone down from 3,000 to 2,000 to 1,000, They're all jammed into the tombs, hiding. Some of them have put the coats of the enemies on. And all Saul can see is the the potential for this situation to go badly. He's he's just got got the jitters. Maybe he goes and plays on his Xbox for a bit to calm down, but he comes back and there's even less men there. Tries to escape for a bit. Nothing's going well. Verse 8. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. Have you ever felt like you've got to take action because the potential of rescuing the situation is slipping away before you? Of course you have. So he said, bring the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Fear does something to you, doesn't it? Fear seems to give you permission to do the things that you know you shouldn't do. It just feels so pressing, it comes in. You see, Saul's got a major weight problem. Just like you and me. A major weight problem. Pressure leads to panic, and the situation demands that you take action. But in that moment, which world are you living in? World one or world two? World one. And it's what we do every day, isn't it? You lose your nerve and you take matters into your own hands. That's what we do. A wise spiritual leader once said, listen, if you're going to go very far in the Christian life, whenever you have any kind of significant decision to make, any, any choices or any ways of handling a situation or any money you've got to spend... Wait 24 hours and pray on it. Just wait. Because fear and panic do something to us and we we don't respond to what comes. We just react. We react. We react. We withdraw and back away and and, and run and hide. or, Or we go into battle. It's just what we do. 
I've noticed this so often in the midst of a busy family life, what I find myself is when problems arise, rather than just slowing down and saying, actually, this problem's still going to be here tomorrow, I jump in and I shout or I take action. I've let my kids down and my wife down doing that countless times. And it's not more about them, it's more about me. I see risks and I want to take, uh, take charge. And then Samuel comes along and imagine those words. We heard them once before in the Garden of Eden. When God came walking in the cool of the day and he looks at Adam and Eve and goes, what have you done? Have you any idea what you've robbed yourself of? And here we see it here. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? What can I smell? I can smell an offering. What were you thinking? You're the king. God is going to bless this nation through you if only you'll sit under his word and not try to play God. But you did. You're an idiot. The Lord has come through for you every single time, but this time you decided, you decided you'll take action. What is wrong with you? Now what would have been good at this point? What would it have been good for Saul to do? How about just simply fessing up and going, guilty? But if you notice how quickly we jump to defend our fear-shaped decisions, we do it all the time. And so he comes, doesn't he, with his list of, uh, of problems. Can you see it there? When I saw, verse 11, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me and Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt uh, compelled to offer the burnt offering. When I saw the people, in other words, it was their fault. When you didn't come, in other words, Samuel, it was your fault. When the Philistines were getting closer, it was dead scary. In other words, the circumstance demanded it. When, uh, 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 when the religious thing didn't seem to be working, in other words, it was God's fault. It was everybody's fault except whose? He wouldn't take responsibility. Does that sound familiar in an age that has made victim mentality an art form? We'll blame everybody or everything except standing up and saying... Yeah, I did wrong in the midst of that. I acted rashly. I made the mess. I didn't live in world number two. It's all standing there and going, what did you expect me to do? I couldn't do anything else. What do you expect me to do? Stand there and do nothing? Do you know, sometimes standing there and doing absolutely nothing is the exact thing you're supposed to do. Because that's the faith-filled response. Don't obey your fears, because in that moment, you're pushing away, you're belittling, you're acting in unbelief. The situation didn't cause you to do it. It just revealed your faithlessness in your heart in that moment. Now, we have a weight problem, don't we? I had to do it. No, you didn't. I learned this week that the average household in the UK has a personal debt, not mortgages, a personal debt of £16,000. The reason we're in debt is because we've got a weight problem. There is something I felt I had to have or had to buy. And I never own up to it. 
that it's just that I won't wait, what I do is I make excuses and I say things like, well, it was an offer and if I hadn't bought it then, I'd have had to pay more in the future. Or my kids absolutely need 500 quid spent on them each at Christmas, otherwise they won't feel loved. Or such and such, they've got it and they're a Christian, that means I should be able to have it. God wants me to have good things. I've got a weight problem. Or else in relationships. You see that person who's not a believer. And you feel a bit isolated and lonely and you say, do you know what? She makes me feel wonderful and God wants me to feel wonderful and I'm not getting any younger. And what happens if I get left on the shelf? God doesn't want me left on the shelf. I have to do something. And before I know it, I'm stuck in a relationship that dishonors the Lord and robs me of his best for me. What about in those tense emotional moments when situations are really difficult? And I'm tempted to respond and I can justify it. They need shouting at. Or they shouldn't have treated me like that so I'm okay to withdraw packing and give up. Rather than stay in the course, I have a weight problem. Or I see that job and the bills need paying. I've got to pay the bills. And it's really difficult, you know. And I might not get a better one, but I know it takes me away from church and doesn't give me the ability to look after my family and care for them spiritually. I know that the hours are, means that I can't get good Christian fellowship, but I'm sure that'll be okay. And in that moment, I lose my nerve. And it plays out for you and me in so many different ways. But can I tell you how it always ends? So often... With people stuck in miserable lives, with miserable jobs, in miserable relationships. Because in that moment, in that moment they wanted to live in world one rather than in world two. Do you know what Psalm 37 verse 7 says? I know you've all got it memorized. It says this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Is that what we need to be a people who can do? Be still before the, the Lord and wait patiently for him. In verse 13, 14, Samuel comes along and says, you have acted foolishly. Now, foolishly doesn't mean you're a bit dopey. In the Bible, foolishness is spiritual and moral bankruptcy because you don't know the God who made you and loved you. It's as if you're fumbling around in the dark making all kinds of stupid decisions. Saul, you're a, you're a fool. Universally, in every language, to be called a fool is not a good thing. It's never going to be turned into one of those things like, oh, that was wicked, as in it was good. It's never going to be, oh, that was foolish. No, you're a fool. It's just what you are. So these enemies, Saul, in that moment, says Samuel, you've not kept the commands of the Lord that God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. You've not let your, given yourself over into his hands. Those enemies weren't a problem for the Lord, Saul. Speak Baptist Church, your enemies aren't a problem for you. Well, they might be a problem for you, but they're not for the Lord. Of course, those enemies that we face so often, let, let me break them down into two categories. Category number one is our inability to keep ourselves for a holy God. 
And I know your conscience betrays you and you think, how the monkeys could I win in those, that battle? You don't need to because Jesus Christ has won at the cross. But then the circumstances and situations that seek, seek to run and rule things, aren't there? And in those moments, there isn't a big promise in the scripture that the Lord will deliver us New Testament, this side of Jesus, out of difficult situations. He had given a standing promise in the Old Testament that I will rescue you from the hands of your enemy if you walk faithfully before me. That was a standing promise for them. We don't have a standing promise that he's suddenly going to sprinkle fairy dust over all our situations. His promise is even bigger and more worth having than that. He says, as you go through trials and temptations, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you live in the identity that I've given you as children of God, I will carry you through those situations. And you will, do, you will grow in your faith and you will do bold things for me. So the question is, will we hold our nerve? The reality is, I don't. I need a king who's going who's to do it for me. I really do. Here Samuel gets, uh, gets to tell Saul, your reign as you know it is coming to an end and the Lord is going to appoint somebody who, who is a man after his own heart, whose heart beats for God and is after God's own heart, as in after God's own choosing. And in a minute we're going to wonder whether it's Jonathan, but we'll find it can't be him because it's not from his family line or dynasty. And, we, and in a little while we're going to wonder whether it's David, and to some degree it is David, but not ultimately the only one who is the, the one who's got the, the heart after the Lord's own heart is Christ, who in the garden held his nerve. Do you remember that? Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. No matter the cost, I'm going to live in world too. He held his nerve. He went into battle. He trusted. And because of that, he has secured us forever. So that when those moments where we find it hard to hold our nerve come along, we, we know that we are so safe that we can hold our nerve. Increasingly, when threats arrive, I am more poised because I know Jesus has secured me forever. So what do we see at first? Fear exposes a faithless heart. It was there all the time in Saul, but the moment exposed it. But secondly, I love this story. I love this. We probably won't get on to number three, so we'll, we'll drive at this one. I love this bit. One of my favourite bits of the Old Testament. We're going to see how faith seizes the promise of God. Now, what we find through the rest of ch chapter 13 is that they are really in trouble. So what the Philistines did to try and suppress them was dead simple. They set up multiple garrisons, you know, little outposts with stacks of army, uh, army soldiers armed to the teeth with the most modern weaponry. And then secondly, what they did was they stripped out the weaponry making capacity of the Israelites. So in fact, what you're told there, you can see it towards the bottom. Um, verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to, to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was blah, blah, blah. Do you get the idea? They've got no capacity to fight the enemy. They wouldn't even consider thinking of it. You know, what do, what do you go out with? Oh, I'm going to go out with my very best swear words. That'll win it for us. Absolutely nothing at all. They've got spoons, they've got dustpans and brushes, but that's about it. It is humanly impossible. So that is their situation. And 
Isn't that the situation that we've been trained to realise is quite often when you realise your own inadequacy, you begin to reach out and grab a hold of God. So often, our helplessness tempts his omnipotence. It's a risky place to live. You live there every day, don't you? Because the promises of God look so insignificant compared to the weight and burden of your emotions and the challenge of the situation. Have you noticed that you've never recently had a day that wasn't beyond you? It's not just you, it's the person sitting next to you. We wouldn't have to sit for very long, would we, to be able to share tales of how hard we find things. That's the best place to be. No weaponry. Maybe bad, bad language, but that's it. And so we turn over to chapter 14, and what do we see? Now, a detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Mishmash. In other words, the enemy is on the move. And what does the faith-filled second-in-command do? He recognizes the kind of leader that he's supposed to be means that when the enemy's on the move, you move against them. You don't sit there and just let the enemy come at you. You get on the front foot, and maybe that's one of our failures as Christians. We're so often on the back foot, just waiting for the next wave of something to hit us. We're not getting up in the morning and focusing on the Lord and saying, stuff's going to come at me, but when I see the enemy, I'm going to go into battle with the strength that you provide. But Jonathan does. I've got to love Jonathan. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. So how many swords have they got between them? One. How many sets of armor have they got? One, and it was a Philistine garrison, and it was a well-known place. They even named the cliffs. I was trying to think of an equivalent. I don't know quite what the equivalent is, but imagine two. I was, I was thinking like Goodison and Anfield. That doesn't quite work, but you've got these two, two cliffs that are known as big landmarks, and on one side is this massively tooled up to the teeth um, garrison of soldiers, spit, spitting all kinds, ready to fight. And then on the other side, you've got these two dudes. And it's just so exciting because Jonathan knows the promises of God. He has put himself at the disposal of the Lord. He's in the moment and he doesn't live in world number one. He lives in world number two and he's like, they don't look that scary to me. Come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree with him were about 600 men, that's how it's dropped down to. Among them was a hydra who was wearing the ephod, and there was the son of Ichabod's brother, them lot. And the reason they're all mentioned is that they were all the losers whose families had been kicked into touch in the previous chapter. That's who Saul's hanging out with, but Jonathan, he's on the front foot because he knows the Lord. And so he's risking, listen, bold faith is the button that activates the promises of God. It's just, oh, it's so exciting. So, this is, this is great. Okay, this is great. Oh, I get excited. So, right, Saul does nothing. The enemies are advancing. This is the time to claim the promises of the Lord. So, let's take a look at it. So, John, Jonathan goes to his armor bed. Right, we're ready. We're gonna, we, we, we can take them. We can take them. Now, it's not because he's been the gym and done more reps than anybody else or because he's just got an, a type A personality. That's not the world he lives in. He lives in world number two. And the armor bed is like, right, okay, brilliant. Tell us your strategy. Okay? So, well, he comes up. Jonathan says, verse 6, he said to his young armor-bearer, armor come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. 
You can sling that out to somebody next time they, they, they look like they're coming against God. You're an uncircumcised fellow. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And he says that with that kind of optimism. Do you remember Daniel's mates who were about to go into the fiery furnace? Says, listen, nasty Neb, king, you can chuck us into the flames, but our God, if he wants to, um, he's super powerful and he can deliver them, but even if, deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we'll never stop trusting in the name of our God. I'm prepared to risk it for a biscuit. Isn't that exciting? Listen, our credibility as believers in this estate is very low. Can I tell you one of the reasons why that is? We've got a credibility gap. We've got a credibility gap because we're supposed to live with a boldness of faith and a dependence and a gladness in Jesus that means if he doesn't show up, we will look very silly and be dead. Wasn't that what Jonathan was living? The boldness of his faith meant he said, we're going to put it all out there in such a way that if God doesn't show up, we will be as nothing. If he doesn't do his thing, we will be very stupid and pretty badly injured. I love it. He tells them how he's going to do it, and it's a wonderful strategy. Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. Do all that you have in mind, his arm bearer said. I'll come back to that in a minute. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. In other words, my heart is with your heart. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. Jonathan said, come then, uh, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So what's the strategy? We've got one sword. We've got one set of armour. Let's give up the element of surprise and announce that we are an overwhelming force of just two people. When we've done that, let's challenge them, but only engage them in the area that is strategically weakest, i.e. on their home turf, after we have worn ourselves out by climbing up the cliff carrying the armour so that we're knackered when we get to the top. What do you think of the plan? And what does the armor bearer say? Let's go for it. Listen, every single person in this room needs an armor bearer. We're supposed to be spiritual friends. Every single person in this room needs an armor bearer. If you haven't got one, come to me and I will either find you one or I will be your armour bearer. Because we're all supposed to, in our moments, choose out of number one and go into world number two and we're going to need people to encourage us as we go on that way. That's what we need to be. It's wonderful. So which world do they live in? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, that's your plan? Cool, I'm in. My heart's with you. Let's go for it. And of course we find then when we were at verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistines' outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out the holes where they were hiding. And the men in the outpost shouted down to Jonathan and his armor bearer, 
Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Come here, we'll sort you out. All right, you little whippersnappers, we're going to knock you into shape. Jonathan looks at his arm and goes, here goes nothing. Charge! A risky faith that activates the promises of God. I wonder whether you're gutted right now. I was as I, as I went through this this week. I was gutted because I began to think about all the things just in this last week I have forfeited because I wouldn't do that. All the opportunities for the Lord to show his power and his grace and sustaining energy. And I just shied away a little bit. You know, I want to live in that world where Jonathan lived, which is that verse 6. It may be. To choose a bold course of action that if the Lord doesn't show up, you're going to get embarrassed or dead. Now listen, we, we need to be sure that there's a big difference between being sure that God has got the power and God will do it. But there was a standing promise in the Old Testament that when through faith and dependence on God, you go into battle for the honour of his name and the furtherance of his kingdom, the Lord will be with you. And so he was right to say, whether there be many or few, it don't make, make a squat of difference because the Lord is the one who is powerful to save. And there's one bold promise that we're all supposed to stand on, every single one of us. And if you haven't done this yet in your life or you are turning away from it, you must do it now. Don't wait. I told you to wait in the first part of the talk today, but no, this one, don't wait. What you do is you trust Jesus as your saviour. You trust him for salvation. You can take that one to the bank because he's guaranteed it in his word again and again and again. But when it comes to things and circumstances, we need to be a little bit more cautious and have a boldness of faith that is shaped and bridled by his word. What do I mean? I remember a university mission team that I was involved in one time. And they thought to themselves as young Christians, we know our God is big. We know our God is powerful. We want to put on a mission event that demonstrates that because we know that he will come and work. And so one of them felt like they'd had a, a sense or a word from the Lord that they should hire a big 900-seater marquee. And they generated all the funds. They said, basically, in their mind, well, could God do that and fill that with people? Yes, therefore he will. Have you spotted the problem in the logic? Sometimes there are things that God can do, but he hasn't promised he will in his word. And of course they went through that, they booked it, and round about 85 people turned up. And they were like, they felt walloped. They felt like the Lord had let them down. Now the Lord hasn't let them down, they just tried to claim a promise that he hadn't made. But we are nonetheless those who, knowing the contours of knowing our Lord and knowing what he's passionate about... We are to step out in faith. Now, I don't know what that will fully look like for you as an individual. We ask that regularly in our prayer weeks when we come together to seek the Lord, say, what should we be doing next? But I've got a sense of what it was for me this week. So Jane and I have been speaking more about new networks of people in the estate and, and through the activities we do that we can connect up with. And I have to admit, I've backed away from a place where Poppy goes boxing. Because to be honest with you, the people there are scary. I don't have a fat lot in common with them, and most of them would kill me with their little finger. And they all say, lad, a lot. And I just struggle to connect. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dear, oh dear, I might look embarrassed. But Jay and I spoke about it, and we're like, no. We're going to build relationships, we'll look weird, 
and we're going to speak up for Jesus and try and speak up for him as much as we possibly can. And of course, if he doesn't show up, I'm going to look like a divvy. Nothing new there. I can live with that. And I hope I've got armor bearers who come alongside and say, Steve, how's it going as you're trying to speak to them fellas at boxing? And the parents do you go go see and all the meatheads and the, the ones with scars everywhere. What, how's it going? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. I don't know what you've got to do to step out and be bold. And what's the result? Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Oh yeah, keeps on going. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. So he gets to the top and suddenly they start falling over and he's like, oh, this is easy. Stab. Oh, that's easy. And then the ones behind are like, oh, he's battering them all. And they start to sort of run back. And he's like, oh, more. Stab, stab, stab. And in the space not much bigger than the Noah's car park, he kills 20. And then suddenly the, pe- the people who were further behind began to see that this just almost like a wave of people dying. And they start to break out into a panic. And then an earthquake comes because this isn't a problem for the Lord. And suddenly all of the Philistines are hacking at each other. And everything really goes into total meltdown. And the forces are being destroyed in a second. All because... Jonathan climbed up over the cliff and just with a bit of whoops a daisy and they fell. Because everything was in the hands of the Lord. This is a supernatural victory. Verse 23 says it for clear. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuits. The chickens came out of the tombs. So the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. What a privilege to join in the Lord in his victory. And this guy, who possibly could have been king, but now can't be because of his divvy of a dad, he's not going to be the ultimate king. They needed a Christ, one who would win the most unlikely battle for them. And of course, we have that. I mean, it's nuts what we believe, isn't it, as Christians? The apparent weakness. Do you remember the, the Israelites at, at, at Passover and they're like, the angel of death is going to come over at Egypt and he's going to just wipe, so, you know, that slaughterer, that one with the massive sword, that destroyer of nations is coming. But don't worry, you're going to be safe. How? Because there's going to be a lamb. A what? Angel, sword. Don't worry, says dad. The lamb's dead anyway. I've got a shelter under the death of a dead lamb? That ain't going to work. But whether by many or by, by few, doesn't matter. The Lord can save. And as they looked at the cross, and people laughed and scorned and said, what possible good could come out of here in that moment the Lord Jesus was establishing through his death the defeat of sin and death and hell for all who will find their hope and trust in him. That's the king we've got. And it moves us to a boldness of faith to want to step out. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? You know, we're going to have to have a a whole stack of confidence that he will hold us fast if we're going to try and live in world two. I wonder right now whether there's things you need to be saying to the Lord because you can see on the horizon of this coming week that you're going to be dragged or you're going to drag yourself back into world number one 
do you feel even the pull? You'll notice it the second we start on tea and coffee. It, it wasn't, I mean, it was difficult, but not super difficult because the Lord's been with us as we've looked and we've dared to try and put ourselves in world number two while we sit on the blue chairs. But it's when we get up off the blue chairs that suddenly world two starts to slip away and world number one seems to dominate. But the place to break that is to say, Lord, would you hold me fast? Would you help me to live in world number two? Would you help me to hear your word and take it in and live under your precious promises, not forfeit them, but live boldly by them? And Lord, thank you for Jesus who led the charge and secures me all the way through. He will hold me fast. And so as I leave you just pondering that now, maybe even in the quietness of the pause, you could pray. I want to invite the musicians up because we're going to sing. He will hold me fast. haven't we to come and celebrate and to remember the grace of God through communion Uh, this is to be something that's valued and so we'd ask that if you've not been baptized or you're under the age of 18 you'd let the the bread and the, the wine pass by there's no shame or embarrassment in that and we'd ask if you're um harboring any bitterness or you're in dispute with any other believer uh to sort that first so that you can enter into this in the future. Well, let me uh, read some words from Romans. This is what it says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, I wondered whether, uh, Steve, if you would give the bread out this side. And Joe, would you...
God's word says this to us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. As believers here today, we have the assurance, don't we, that through the blood of Christ, sin has been paid for, and that we are a new creation in Christ. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Uh, What we'll do now is we'll give out the cup. If you want to hold that cup, um, and we'll drink that together uh, to celebrate. Great. Um, Let's drink. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of grace. We thank you, Lord, that sin has been fully paid for. We thank you that we stand in grace this morning. Help us, Lord, to continue in repentance and faith, being thankful for the relationship we have with you. And Lord, we thank you for that incredible verse in Romans that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you, Lord, for your death and resurrection, which brings us peace with God. And we thank you, Lord, that if we're trusting in your blood today, we have that eternal hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to finish by singing uh, the rest of that song. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Uh, if you want to sing, uh, stand and we'll, uh, we'll finish by singing that.